This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome, everybody, to the Investors Roundtable. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And we have a, an excellent panel uh, for you guys. And I hope it will be excellent. I'm pretty sure it's going to be excellent. I, I hope going in every time. But I, I think this one, I'm fairly confident you guys will all really enjoy. Our topic today is identifying great companies early. You know, we're going to be going through anecdotes, how each of our panelists have found them in their careers and just uh, some things to look for and or look out for. You know, you might see some imposters out there that, that have, uh, are masking themselves as uh, great companies early. So, you know, we're going to go through all that today. And so joining me today on this panel, a couple newbies that uh, I've interviewed in the past on Planet Microgap that I'm so excited have, uh, have, are, are here today. Uh, uh, to my bottom right, I guess it would be, I'm sure it's going to show up differently if you're watching this, is a Sean Iddings. Uh, he said I should introduce him as an entrepreneur, but that's kind of like, you know, the, you seeing the tip of the iceberg versus everything that happens beneath. So uh, he, he's, he's done a lot when it comes to microcap and, and really supporting the community over the years. So I'm so excited Sean is here. Sean, what's going on, man? It's good to see you, Bobby, and glad to be on the the, the show. I've watched it a bunch of times and really enjoy what you're doing. And I'm looking forward to chatting with the other guests today. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Thanks, man. And also first time joining us, but recent interviewee on Planet Microcap. He is known as the Batman investor. He is the Alaska permanent fund by day, microcap investor by night, Marcus Frampton. Marcus, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. That's an awesome nickname. So I appreciate it, Bobby. <laughs> of course, man. you got it. Bobby coined that one. I did not come up with that. <laughs> you know, I can't even take full credit because uh, my ho our hosts on In the Market Trenches, you know, they they're also very they have a similar mindset as well. So uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, I guess if we had to have like the 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 microcap verse, you know, the multiverse of Batman investors, there's many of them. But uh, you know, Marcus, uh, Batman investor, we'll do you know. You're Batman 661, right? I think that's what they refer to in the Marvel universe. Earth 661, I don't know. Anyways, so, so nerdy, but we're going to get past that. Here we go. Also joining us, the vet of the Investors Roundtable crew, the man with many opinions, anecdotes, the full bit, an incredible selection of eyewear as well. We got Jason Hirschman. <laughs> What's up, Jason? How you doing? Hey, nice to nice. Always a pleasure to be here, Bobby. And I, I don't know if I can compete with Batman. And, and Sean is rocking the Clark Kent look today with his with his new glasses there. So, uh, but I think he's gonna pull open and uh, reveal himself as Superman once he starts talking about the stories he has. So, uh, pleasure to be here. Very cool. Thanks for joining us. So, you know, to get right into it, as I said at the top, our topic is identifying great companies early. I wanted to kick it off with Sean because Sean is also the co-author of one of my favorite books on investing, Intelligent Fanatics. Uh, has worked with Ian closely on Microcap Club over the years. And I, I know as a vast array of anecdotes, the whole bit. So Sean, let's start off with you. You know, what, what would you say is core to you when you're looking to find great companies early? It's a very good question, Bobby. And I think one of 
the things that I've learned throughout really anything that I've been doing. Like I was really into music growing up. I went to school for that. Uh, so I've you know, really seen how some of the great individuals there get there, but also how some people in that industry are able to find the next great individuals. But one of the things I think in business, a lot of people forget is that business is people really if you boil it down to the most basic essence. And I think with business, that's human. That's the thing that's really identifiable, right? So business, you have organizations, there's a lot of complexities around, you know, what services are provided and how they're, you know, people are able to create them or implement them to their customer. But the people aspect is one of the things that's really important and knowable. And I think for identifying super talented, you know, companies early, you really have to look at super talented leaders really early on. And I think that's one of the things that you is more uh, that's you're able to actually identify earlier in a company is who's kind of the DNA of the company, that being the leader, and how are they trying to build what they're trying to build? And so learning to identify those super talented people before others is, I think, one of the most unique superpowers an investor can have, and it's totally underrated. Uh, and so that's one of the things that I've really tried to learn about, build some mental models around it, and then be able to utilize that my pattern recognition system to find these companies early and then be able to not only find them early, which is I'd say rather the easy part uh, or easier part, and then be able to hold on to them through thick and thin. So I think that would be one of the things that I uh, really think about when I'm trying to find you know the next great company. And of course, I, I have a bunch of different examples that I wanted to, to give, but I'd, I'd like to hear some of the other guys' thoughts. Yeah, that's a great way to kick it off. Marcus, Jason, you know, what? same question. What do you, what, what's core to you in finding great companies early? Marcus. Um, well, I'll throw something out and then Jason can go. I mean, I, most of my investing in micro caps, I'm looking at companies kind of under 50 million market cap. So just starting there, and it's usually over the counter. So just starting there, you're already at a valuation that's lower than most early stage venture capital deals today in the market. Like, I don't know the exact number, but, you know, if you're doing a series A or series B from a major venture capital firm, you're probably at a pre-money valuation above 50 million at that point. Maybe the seed angel rounds were lower, but you're already at a very small company. So if things are going well, there's a lot of runway and there's like, the potential to uplist and there's you know if it and every business is different if it's a retail concept if you're at that size and the unit economics are working on the stores you're by definition not you know across the country so there's tons of white space for any company of that size but obviously it doesn't apply to every company there's a you know i mentioned before the the conversation the a company i'm involved with that went public in the 50s and its market cap was under $10 million for that whole period of time, which is kind of amazing. So it's not like a given that a company, and 
to be in business for 50 years, 70 years is you're by definition successful, but you're not growing rapidly. Um, so I start with valuation and I'm looking for companies that are small, but trade at, you know, low multiples of cash flow. And then like the holy grail for me is when you have that combination with some upside um, event, like it could be a small industrial company that never will grow. But, um, you know, one that I invested in recently um, it, that I don't own at this point is mechanical technology. And, the, you know, it showed, it screened well, like on the base, they make, you know, some aerospace instruments and have like a million of EBITDA in a typical year. And, you know, I bought that last summer at six, seven times EBITDA and they have all these NOLs and they decide to get into cryptocurrency mining, which I know nothing about. Um, but, you know, it was a good investment, in my opinion, just off the base business. And there's this, you know, upside that's hard to get your arms around that gives you some optionality. Um, what I would love to hear from these guys about is how you stay in, um, because my mistake is I always sell when the margin of safety goes away. So anyone that's followed mechanical technology will know that it just rocketed up. Like, you know, they bought a, you know, uh, some Bitcoin mining assets out of bankruptcy. That's now in vogue. They're, you know, and the stock went from 75 to, I think today it's a 10 or 12. And, and you know, so that's like, a, you know, a 15 bagger. I participated from 75 to three. I think these, these guys have maybe mastered the art of hanging on for the, the whole long run. But like in summary, to me, it's I want to invest with a margin of safety, a low valuation. And then if there's some business plan that, you know, to get you to 10x, you don't want to bank on that, but it's great if it's there. Very cool. Thank you, Marcus. Jason? Yeah, you know, I, I think Marcus raises a number of interesting questions. And I don't think I don't think anyone really truly masters finding great companies early, right? All you really can hope for is finding literally just you know, maybe even less than a handful in an investing career uh, and, and hope that really has a remarkable effect on your, on your, on your net worth. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's also like just not only in finding them, but also holding on to them is a very difficult thing. And, and I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, Expel, which, you know, Sean and I own a little later on, but, but, you know, I'm just, just a, like a day or two ago, this company called Liat, which makes sort of bicycle motocross accessories reported, uh, and, uh, and I, own, I own like 100 shares now. But it, literally a, a few years ago, I was a 13G investor. I had 353,000 shares. And I you know, believe in management. I, I met them a, a few times, uh, believe that they're doing a great job. And for, for really stupid reasons in hindsight and maybe some bad luck, uh, I sold my shares to get into another company called Hemercare, which, which doubled but then sold. You know, couldn't get back in because it's a, a nano cap, uh, and it went from like two dollars and fifty cents up to like twelve. So that's like a like a two million dollar mistake that that I made, even though I was patient for a few years. So it, it's just something that like even if you have tremendous success that you never truly master, and you're always you know looking you know always looking to improve, and you're always at this you know you're always, always going to make errors. So you just I guess you can't so take what, it personally, yeah. but you lose a couple. I guess Bobby colors. asks questions, but you I have a question because I'm trying to figure out how to figure out when I get out but of please it. Please jump in. Everybody you, jump in so, whenever you So want. you have your position and then it's kind of a use of, uh, it's a highest and best use thing. Like, like, like 
I had other things I wanted to put my mechanical technology capital into, and that's part of why I got out. Is that kind of? Yeah, you know, it, it's funny because you know, uh, with with Liat, I was frustrated at the at the pace of their growth and distribution, yeah. and you know, and, and even when you do a, a post post mortem, right, and you try to figure out where where did I make the mistake. You know, it's really difficult to do, which is why I think partly it's so difficult to improve as an investor, right? Did was I just unlucky in the fact that like doors, you know, things really accelerated during COVID nineteen. You know, everybody suddenly wanted bicycle equipment. Everybody suddenly wanted to be outside and exercise. And you know, they were always like, well, if we, you know, the bicycle industry, the motocross industry was stagnant. They couldn't get you know into be like the third supplier. And suddenly everybody wanted another supplier, right? And they were like that next. They were like the next ball, you know, next, next big thing. And so, you know, how much is that, is that a mistake on my part? And how much of just not believing that, you know, and maybe these guys, you know, there's such a great management team, they would have found this solution anyway, if I gave them more time. So I think, you know, it, it's so hard when you do make a mistake to, to figure out what's the true cause of it. And that's partly why it's so hard to improve as an investor. Right. Because it's not like you were wrong, it, you know, I, you 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 pick the right you 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 pick the right companies. It was just that, and this is something we talk about all the time on here is that the damn timing, you know, and and trying to understand when we want to get in or out or or you see another opportunity, and you know, it's sometimes a very uh, ham. I call it the Hamletian effect. I mean, where, yes, I mean it, it's it's exactly what you say, you know, very Hamletian effect. The as Hamletian, you, as you, uh, you say. brand new, uh, everybody, and it, it's 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 I mean, tough. It's stolen like, everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, sorry. I, I, Jason, I cut you off. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I was, I was going to pass it on to, to Sean or Marcus. I'm yeah. sure they have some, some thoughts on, on uh, war stories that they could share and, and also just you know, get back on the, you know, how do you find those great companies? Absolutely. Sean? Well, I don't really have anything to add in terms of like opportunity costs and trying to learn from whatever mistakes. Uh, it's really hard to do uh, in real time. And you just have to keep learning, learning, learning. Um, but one, one thing that I wanted to bring up to you guys, just to hear your input, but one, one example that's really helped me to contextualize and really have this idea of finding talent early. And like I said before that, I think business, I think you can, it's really hard to find a company just a company, if you're looking, you're zooming out and you're looking at an organization and trying to see if it's going to be the next 20, 30, 40, 100 X, that's really hard to do. But I, like I said, I think one of the more identifiable pieces would be the human component of that. And especially looking at the leadership because they create the programs and incentives and all the strategies and the vision to really get the whole organization and team going in the right direction. Uh, so the one example that I have is back in 1959, uh, Columbia Records was having a really tough time trying to go away from like the jazz scene and classical. And the owner, Goddard Lieberson or something like that, he decided to hire back an old, older gentleman. He's in his 50s now, his name, John Hammond. Now John Hammond he had this Midas touch for finding great musicians in his 20s. So, and we're talking jazz here in, in the 30s. So he found 
Billie Holiday. He found Aretha Franklin. He found uh, Count Basie's orchestra. He found, you know, just on and on and on. And if you don't know jazz, just think he, he was pretty much the Warren Buffett of jazz, you know, finding the next great jazz player. And I think he's a, the perfect model for any of, you know, you investors trying to level up your game on finding great companies early or, you know, boiling it back down to finding great leaders early. And the story goes on that he was, you know, hired in 1960 about, and you think this guy has no idea what the new music scene is, you know, and if you go back to the 60s, it's more folk, folks music. But what did he do? So if you're going to bet on John Hammond, you wouldn't bet on him if you didn't know about him, because you think, you know, he's a 50 year old crotchety guy who had a great track record. But no, if you really understood how Hammond thought and how he did, you know, found these great artists early, is that when he was in his 20s, he was at every single jazz club in New York City. And there were stories, people saying if there was a broadcast, if there was a rehearsal, if there was anything happening to do with jazz, John Hammond was there. Uh, and so he, he was... He knew everything. So now in 1961 or so, he doesn't know anything about the new scene. So what does he do? He goes to Greenwich Village and he learns everything about folk music because that was really kind of the- By the way, this guy's job sounds more interesting, no offense, Bobby, than just <laughs> the OTC microcap analogy listen to all of Bobby's podcasts. But, um, with, but, it's, but there's, there's- I think so I picked parallel. the wrong career. Anyway, yeah, well, there's so many parallels. Uh, so he, he's in Greenwich Village and he's, you know, rubbing shoulders with all these hippies. And he's learning everything he can about the music scene. And he uh, signs this, what, Carolyn Hester, singer-songwriter. Uh, she had a halfway decent career. Uh, but, like, during one of her recording sessions, she had this kind of tall, skinny, stinky hippie that had a guitar and harmonica uh, in the recording session. And John thought to himself, he's like, who is this guy? I, I see this kid and with this hat on and this harmonica and you didn't really play it well, but he's like, dude, this is gonna be the next hit. This guy is gonna be the next, the greatest musician. And then so, course he tried he signs this guy and everybody's saying oh you're making the stupidest mistake in the world and then he's like i just have a hunch and so you know long story short kid's name is robert allen zimmerman you're like who who's that <laughs> bob dylan bob dylan uh and so he he signs bob dylan before anybody thought anything of this kid you know, Bob Dylan has, you know, he sells 10 million records by like 1966 and then like 120 million by like 2008. Of course, you know, that's it. But I think what John Hammond did and how he thought and how he, you know, found, you know, developed his hunch for talent, I think is the epitome of what every investor should do. So I'll just kind of boil it down from there. So what did he do? He was turning over more rocks than anybody else. He was in, you know, the specific 
industry or he was in this specific genre. He knew everything about everything in that space. And he, he knew, he went to every single rehearsal, like I said, he knew everything happening and he had to listen to like trash, garbage, lots of it. But eventually, and of course he, you know, since 14 years old till, you know, even in his fifties, he's listened to so much talent. He can immediately, you know, his pattern recognition for talent is just ridiculous. And so he's built up this pattern recognition database in his mind. Uh, another thing, uh, he, he had F, F you money and attitude. Like he didn't care what anybody thought. He knew what he knew because he just really understood, you know, what a great musician was and what audience wanted. And then the last thing, like attract like. So he himself, you know, uh, we, Ian and I have written about intelligent fanatic. He's an intelligent fanatic himself because he's built up. He, he knows everything about music, you know, in a specific space. And he's got you know, really high level of detail that he goes about. He knows everything about everything. And so when he finds somebody similar to him, it's like looking in the mirror. He just, you know it. So I think those are some of the takeaways. So it's really building the foundation for uh, understanding. And so, you know, for me, it's business is people. Leadership is the rarest commodity in, in the world in terms of great leadership. And then you have to flip over more rocks than anybody else, build a few money and attitude and really just become, you know, who you want to invest with. And then you just look for yourself. It's easy as that. Marcus, let me just ask you a question. I'm curious. Are you? Do you talk to to uh, management at at some point in your investment process? And and how much does that come into play, especially with these micro caps and nano caps? Right, you do have access to management many oh, times. Yeah. So I was wondering whether that that's that's something that that helps form your your basis when you're looking for great companies. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll be honest. Like, I for me, management is largely a negative screen. You know, like mm. because I, it's rare, every now and then you come across really strong management teams, um, but in this segment of the market, like Sean's describing, but more often than not, it's it's a negative screen for me of like, like someone who's prudent, who, you know, is more of a business person than a salesperson, um, et cetera. You know, I've been thinking a lot about value versus growth recently. It's like this big theme um, sure. that everyone's talking about right now. And, uh, and a lot of like finding early situations like connotates, you know, growth um, investing. And I think probably your expel situation is, a, but like, I'm usually on the you know value margin of safety side, sure. but then it's like, if something like, like turns to becoming a growth stock, that's where it, it becomes, um, you know, like the potential for a 10 or 20 bagger where it goes from, okay, this is stable business at a low multiple with a, a reasonable management team, you can see it double from here. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of how I think about it. I mean, it's, it, when I hear, I think it's also easier to screen for ideas with a value mindset than a growth mindset because um, it, it, better results probably come from identifying, you know, high growth, like the next uh, Hammond, et cetera, you know, it, but it's harder to like actually screen and, and so, I mean, I'm usually doing like capital IQ screens for, you know, companies that trade under five times EBITDA. We should put in the show notes, the link to the 
FINRA new OTC stock um, page. I can email it to you or you probably have it, Bobby. But I mean, like I've noticed, um, I've started following that in the last year. And um, <clears throat> one thing that I like to participate in is when companies go bankrupt and they come back out, mm. there's this like 30 day window where they're, where they show up on the FINRA page, but the equity is in the hands of the old lenders and there is selling pressure at that point. So like Tuesday morning is a retailer that came out in January, you know, you could buy that at, at you know, at the, oh, I don't own it. I did a while ago. <laughs> um, you know, you could buy that at $1.50, $1.60. You could have put hundreds of thousands or maybe even millions of dollars into the stock at sub $2 a share for the first 30 days. So like super meaningful to me, but not meaningful to like an institutional investor. There was an institutional investor would have looked at it at that point and said, there's no liquidity here. I'm moving on. The stock's now close to $3 a share. And it wasn't that hard to just look at it and tell that it was really cheap. I mean, they cleaned up. All these bankrupt companies get kind of cleaned up in bankruptcy and then they come out. And I think, um, you know, so that's not like the next hundred bagger. It's not the next Excel. And maybe from that standpoint, that's not the topic here, but it is getting in early. And, you know, if you wait for someone to write up to, you know, in that first 30 days, it was probably three weeks in, all of a sudden a write-up showed up on Seeking Alpha and actually a small brokerage firm initiated coverage um, a few weeks in and it, things kind of just stabilized and it went up, you know, 50, 60% in a few weeks. And, what you know, there's probably one new bankrupt stock out a month on average. And you can kind of like recycle your money in, into these things. I don't want to make it sound easier than it is because they're not all good. But that OTC new, newly issued securities on OTC is, is a good place to look. Yeah, actually, you know, and, and it's, it's an interesting question um, because I, I think there's, there's actually a way to merge both, both value and growth when, when looking for great companies, which is that sometimes there's a transition point in management. You have an old management team, which is underperforming and you bring in someone new. And there's a, a period of time where a lot of investors really don't want to, to make a move, but you're really starting to see the glimmer of some like truly superb management. And I can think of like Ryan Pape at, at Expel. I think of Rene Gorham at, at Bioscience. Uh, I can think of the, the management team at STK, you know, uh, um, and of course we can even think of, you know, mega large caps when Apple, Apple came back, right? When, sorry, when in Apple, when Steve Jobs came back. So, yeah, and sometimes these stocks are priced, I mean, they're, they're turnaround situations in many cases, so they're priced very cheaply. Uh, but you really have that, 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 you know, to have, to go from a, a mediocre management team to a great management team, that's what sometimes it's like, the, you've got that really like the supercharged possibility for the, for the 10 bag or even higher, right? So those are, are and they don't screen very well, but, but, they, but they scream value, right? Uh, so, uh, and I like to sometimes look for those those possibilities when you have a management team. Even I, I own you know all of those stocks in, in, in some various degrees, um, and even one more recently is is like like Galaxy Gaming that I have a position in also. Right, you have a, a change in management, you have a lawsuit. Uh, a lot of people just want to push that that stock away and say, I, hey, I don't really want to touch it, and things get resolved. But you know, sometimes you have this great underlying business, a potential for a great underlying business. It just needs to be in the hands of the right manager. So those are, I think, really delicious opportunities to investigate. 
uh, if you're looking for that, you know, getting that great company early. How do you actually find it though, Jason? Is it through, you know, what's your equivalent of the jazz club and you know, <laughs> wherever that was? You know what, and, and I, I bet, and, and, and Sean probably could add this too, but you know, these, these people who, when you, after a while, and it takes a little bit of time, right? And it's almost, you always have to be let into the club before you're, you get to go into the secret room, right? But it, you start building a, a network of, of, of friends that you share ideas with and who share ideas with you. And a lot of times, you know, these like weird situations, like you, I just don't understand them, right? Or, or, or my friend doesn't understand it, but one of us understands, you know, sees that little glimmer of like special in it, right? And they can explain it to you. So part of, part of the, I think the process as a, as a investor is to build a network of other fellow investors to bounce ideas off of. Um, and I think honestly, that's probably the most powerful way to discover a great company early is to develop that wonderful network of friends, of fellow investor friends that you can investigate things with. Yeah, I'd like to add on to that. And I definitely agree we're having that network and having other different minds being able to ping off different ideas and different experiences off of each other. And I think Meredith Brill really elucidated and made that a really good uh, word or term that she used in its mosaic. And I think having uh, a group of investors helps you be able to piece together different parts that you might not personally be able to uh, contribute yourself. And so for instance, going back to the XPEL example, I kind of have all of this kind of cultural slash leadership kind of, you know, piece of the puzzle. And then Jason has another piece of the puzzle with valuation and lots of other different aspects that I was able to glimmer, uh, you know, insights from. And then you have Meredith who has like the background that helped during like the IP lawsuit. And then you have so many other people, you know, I can't really think off the top of my head, but they bring in so many good insights that I wouldn't have thought of merely by myself in isolation. And so I, I, I would say having that group or network of individuals and just being in, you know, going back to the analogy with John Hammond being in every jazz club, it's for yourself, you, you need to be in every micro cap space where people are lingering, talking, chatting, and then being able to you know, hear what people are saying, list, you know, throwing off your ideas, and then you're able to really start to know what is happening right now. Agreed. Uh, I actually, say, oh, sorry, Jason. Is that, I think you also find, uh, and it doesn't necessarily happen in micro caps as much, but in some of these other great companies, like, like, like if you see a Home Depot really take off, right? Or you see a MasterCard take off, or, or you see Walmart take off, there may be an opportunity. Sometimes it's, it's a big enough market for someone else really to be successful too, right? If the economics are good, right? For a Walmart, there may be a Target, right? For a Home Depot, there may be a Lowe's. For MasterCard, there may be a Visa. Um, so, you know, for, for Chicago Mercantile Exchange, there may be, uh, you, know, inter, you know, ICE. So, you know, the, I think there's ways to, you know, don't, if you do find some, see something that, that's great, doesn't mean there's not more great in that same area. So I, I, I couldn't agree with everything that you just said. By the way, I, I, I couldn't agree more with trying to be everywhere where investors are chatting about these companies. I mean, I just, 
I just sat in on a clubhouse uh, chat yesterday where they were doing stock pitches. And I, I found it just so cool. I, I really enjoyed it. Just that, that platform that it was live and just kind of talking through ideas. And it was like, you know, it was taking that, you know, going to the bar meetup experience and you're just you can play it on your phone. Like I had my headphones in, I was supposed to, I was doing busy work and I could just Oh, listening to actually I, I knew the stocks for years so it was really, yeah, really one, one more name i just like to mention which i don't own but just for the another example of like when management changes and i'm not saying it's a great company i'm just saying it becomes a more perhaps investable at least worth investigating it's like a company like charles and Covard, right had a change in management yeah uh, looks like they're becoming more efficient the stock is actually performing better though in the background of a happy market and I think actually they're going to be at the uh, Planet Microcap Showcase, if I recall. Oh, look at you! Look at you giving right. a little shout. I'm out doing all the Planet work for you, You're doing all, you're doing all the <laughs> the event promotion that possible. Yeah, no, I mean that that's an interesting one. I can't really because I, I actually interviewed Suzanne quite a bit, you know. And, yes, uh, yes, I'm, I'm, not yeah, saying, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I haven't even interviewed new management yet, so I'm I'm actually looking forward to doing that at some yes. point too, soon. And and are you a shareholder? Jason. I'm are sorry. You, are, you, are you currently a shareholder, of Charles? No, Colbert? I'm not a, a shareholder, gotcha. Charles Colbert. Gotcha. Well, one thing I wanted to actually get back to, um, it, it, and it's going back to the John Hammond. I just I thought that that story was really quite apropos for what we're talking about here, because you can think about that story both from an investor perspective and also when you're evaluating management. You know, the whole time when I was hearing that, Sean, when you were going through it, is I kept thinking to myself about the new question that I asked most CEOs on on uh, when i do interviews with them is it not, i always ask them their background especially if it's the first interview but i've changed it up where i'm like you know i hear more about the story and i'm saying well i have to imagine you must have some experience doing so and so thing and and doing what you're doing right like i, I just did an interview i remember with a, with a company that uh is making uh investments in in um in, in like ideas out of tech transfer stuff and I was like, oh, so you must have experience in building these small companies or taking these ideas to the next level. And of course you said, yes, actually I do because I, I, I've had three exits and now we're doing this. Um, so it's interesting that that was one thing I kept thinking of when you said that was, you know, just when you're talking about people and culture is really focusing on, especially when you're trying to find these companies early is whether that management team, whether they're the founder CEO or the new management team coming in, if they actually have that experience doing some of these things. Right. Right. And it's, you can also get an idea of how, how they think about leadership, how, you know, what their vision is, how they communicate it to you, but you know, you're able to talk with employees, you know, potentially or customers or whoever else. And you can really get an idea of how the founder CEO or the new CEO would be, you know, how they actually communicate in reality. And so, I mean, there's, there's so many, there's so many yeah. examples. I mean, I was just watching the Blockbuster documentary the other day where, you know, they brought in the Taco Bell guy, you know, and we all saw what happened when the Taco Bell guy came in and that's not to discount his success at Taco Bell. Well, you know, didn't, didn't so much work out with Blockbuster, right? You know, and I mean, that, that's on a much more massive scale. And when we're talking about micros, I'd say it's even more important especially with all the interviews that I've done over the years is the, the real guys and, and people have, uh, they had a, a long career. It, long, okay, long, that's not fair. They've had at least some experience in that area prior to becoming that CEO or they were the founder CEO working at it for you know, five, 10 years 
before then the company went public and you know they, they know every everything about the company inside and out but marcus i mean what do you think about this i know you say you don't necessarily screen for management so like when you think about management, especially since being on boards, I mean, I, I think we might have talked about this a little bit on, on our individual interview, but you know, what, what are some things then that you do look for if you are to consider management, if everything else does check the boxes? Well, I mean, like I said, it is usually for me a, a negative screen. And by that, I mean, you're, it's, it's something that would disqualify an investment, but not um, get, you know, it's not typically something that gets me interested up front. Like I'm interested on other characteristics. And then, you know, if you have the wrong management, but I mean, it, it I think that, that man, high management ownership correlates to successful outcomes and like, like smart share moves in the interest of shareholders, um, you know, and, and um, you know, uh, Liberated syndication is an interesting stock and I don't own it. I did in the past. I don't know if these guys have followed it at all, but I mean, that's a company that, so like, I don't know what platform do you host on? I use, on I use their competitor. No, use I, a competitor. Use, okay. I, I use, I use yeah, well, so, so Libsyn was like one of the earliest uh, podcast hosting platforms. So like, they're not competing with, you know, Apple podcasts. They're, they're, you know, who you, if you want to start a podcast, you sign up with them. I think it's like for the entry level one, it's like six bucks a month, but then it goes all the way up to like probably hundreds a month. And then they'll help you with advertising and take a cut and things like that. I mean, that, that was a company that had, you know, pretty bad management about as bad as it gets, you know, like borderline. Uh, anyway, I don't want to impugn anyone, but I think if you, you know, Google it, you'll get the point. Um, but, you know, so that's like why I look at it as like a negative screen. Like I ended up investing in, in, in LSYN, um, but the biggest negative was management. And then actually an act, a really small activist fund, um, you know, did a campaign and, and change management. So like that, and that stock went from, you know, it was originally spun out of another company that was in bankruptcy and it came out at like 40 cents a share and it's like four bucks a share now, but it's a high growth company that, you know, but again, I found it because it was, it would show up on the under five times EBITDA screen, even though it was growing 20 or 30% a year and is in like one of the best high growth industries out there. Um, you know, if I had looked at that and it, you know, the CEO was, you know, an ex-executive from Spotify or something. I mean, that thing would be trading at 10 times revenue, but it was like the opposite. But even it was such an extremely undervalued stock that that you could get over, you know, the the, the folks running the company. So that's what I mean by a negative screen. Gotcha. By the way, my quick story on Podbean versus Libsyn is yeah. in all fairness, when I, when I, this is not a typical consumer trend of, my, of mine, but I remember when I looked up podcast publishing, Podbean was the first one that came up at the time. This okay. was back in 2015. So like, I guess they just paid a little bit more on the SEO side to get started. Right. Also, it said Podbean, like the name in it itself. I was like Liberated Syndication versus Podbean. I'm going to yeah, go with Podbean. It was the time when Liberated Syndication, I think, was like 90% market share. And I mean, it kind of gets to like management. Like if you had the right people running the company, you know, we'd be talking about Liberated Syndication, not mm -hmm. Xbell. And I mean, it's still... I. I think the people involved now are top notch and it's probably a, a pretty interesting situation still. Um, but uh, competitors came up and I think there's a company called Anchor that I think. Anchor, does, yeah. yeah. Blueberry. Okay. So there are a few now and they kind of like 
had this early move in this great growing industry and and I think they're going to do great, but like they they lost a couple of years, I think. And I think there really is like, you know, sometimes with these smaller stocks, right, there is a window of opportunity uh, in a in a market. And, you know, and and I, I don't own the stock, but I think of like Jones Soda and, you know, and they had Jennifer Q, I think, who yeah. I think it was, a, was for a while as a CEO and very highly rated, very highly considered. But, you know, it was just she came in at a time when, when like, you know, even if it's real sugar, but that wasn't where the market was going in drinks. And, you know, sometimes even if you have a great management team, uh, if, if there's just so much uh, headwind in your business or your industry, even a great management team can't overcome that. Or, uh, and then it's, it's a chicken and the egg thing, right? What, what makes for, are we recognizing great managers because partly they're in a great industry or a growing industry, right? It's, it's tough to separate them a little bit. But I just want to make one point, one point, Bobby, uh, is that, you know, sometimes, and, and uh, you know, like, and I'm sure Sean, you may have some thoughts on this too, right? Like we see these threads on Twitter that like, tell me the, the next 100 bagger, tell me the next 50 bagger, right? And it's like, there's like 60 people who have like responded with these ticker symbols. And you start looking through these ticker symbols, hoping to find the next 60, you know, 60 bagger, 50 bagger. And you find these companies and these people believe in them, but they're like, they do like $150,000 in revenue and they're losing like $6 million a year, right? Uh, and they obviously get a new to do like 16 secondaries in the next 16 months. Uh, and you, know, you, you wonder, I mean, people sometimes think like to find the big next great company, you gotta like buy a lottery ticket. And, and great managers don't work in lottery ticket businesses, at least not for long. Because who the heck would want to work in a company that, that's like on the verge of like blowing up, you know, time and time and time again, right? So great management teams, great companies find a way to stabilize the business, put together at least a, a, a decent balance sheet, you know, the kind of business where someone who has like a family and kids would actually want to work, mm-hmm. right? Who has responsibilities. So I, I do caution anybody who's listening, if you like, have a portfolio of like lottery tickets thinking that's going to be like your, 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 you know, the way to, to you know, the lifestyle of a rich and famous type house. It, it ain't the way, man. And I, I just like to add that. Um, thank you. Uh, it's like with in, investing, there's so many different ways to skin a cat and there's so many different genres in investing. And I think what we're talking about right now is uh, very kind of specific style. So, you know, looking at the management, looking at, you know, what, what tailwinds are, are there. There's, this is just one, one way to look at, you know, the next great business, because there might be other businesses that you might be going through something that's slightly differently. They might have different economics happening that still could be another great business. So just really, again, uh, adding on to your point, Jason, that it's, there's so many different ways to invest in this, we're just kind of talking about- Well, there's my way or the highway. That's it, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> no, no, you're right. You're absolutely right. Very cool. Or just going back to the, the music analogy, you know, there's 10 different ways to, to play just one type of blues. There's just so many different ways in where it's, and it's all music, just like this is all investing. And you know what? I'm sure John Hammond had quite a few that he, you know, quote unquote, missed. 
you know, or saw uh, not really. He's <laughs> <laughs> like the Warren Buffett of music back back in the that's, that's a great point, Sean, because the great ones, they really don't miss as often as you think they would, right? They do, the great they ones do. have such a you know, we talk about slugging percentage and, and, and but they they hit they connect often and they wallop the ball too. So right. that's like a that's like a tell like a great management team because they just don't screw up they don't screw up and it's it but in we could move back even further and kind of delineate what makes them get to that point and of course that would be another you know podcast show on, on that topic but it's, hey, we got time marcus totally. doesn't have a hard stop anymore let's just keep going. <laughs> at some point i'd love to i'm probably the only person that doesn't really know the expel story like i know all i really know is it was you know like a hundred bagger or something like that i'd love to hear that but like just first one observation is like if you're if you're getting a 10 bagger the following has to happen i mean like let's just say you have a stock that's trading a pe multiple of 20 and that multiple stays flat to triple your money um you have to grow the earnings at 25% a year for three years. Then to get up to 6X, you have to grow the earnings at 25% a year for another three years. You're basically to get the 10X, if you have a constant multiple of your earnings, you've got to grow your earnings at 25% a year compounded for nine or 10 years. Like it's not too many companies can do that, you know? And and then the, the, the like, so the, the, 10 baggers that I've seen, and most of them I participate up to like 2X or 3X and I sell too early, I always do that, is some like massive valuation change on the current business. So like I mentioned mechanical technology, like they were like six times EBITDA and a market cap of like seven over the summer. And then all of a sudden the market decided because they're involved with Bitcoin mining their worth 90 million you know and so but the the multiple is now instead of five times operating cash flow it's now 20 30 i don't know the exact number i'd have to look it up but it's in the you know in many many multiples of where it was valued when i started uh looking at it and um so i was just curious on like expel like i mean it all boils down to how fast they're growing their earnings and how the market's valuing those earnings and i haven't seen too many hundred baggers in my life but I'm interested in how like those two variables played on that investment. And maybe I'm mistaken that it was a hundred bagger. That was just my impression. Jason, I do you want a hundred bagger depending on, depending on what, what you get in, right? And, and so much. And oh, right. Yeah. You can have a 10 bagger, you can have a hundred bagger and, and still do very, you know, but some people bought Expel at $5. Some people bought Expel at, at 50 cents. Um, I think the last time I was on your, co- uh, on your call, Bobby, like two weeks ago was at $60. I'm, I'm losing a buck a day talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> expel, by the way. So I hope you. I hope you're. Uh, you're bad juju. You are bad juju. <laughs> but, but you know, to get back, Marcus, and I think with these with these very small companies like we're hunting the nano caps, micro caps, right? You can actually achieve more than that twenty five percent compounded growth in earnings because there's such tremendous operating leverage for these tiny companies. Yeah. So you'll see a situation where they maybe even for a couple of years they make. 100% more, 200% more, right? And then they start going to that more that 15%, 25% growth for a, a few years. And so you get that, you know, deservedly so, uh, even though it may tra- trade at a 20 PE, you get, you know, tremendous earnings growth, 
plus some multiple expansion if it's if it's truly a, a like a, a great business to say like like an expel and you know i owned mastercard back in 2006 right you go through some of those early conference calls and you know, the operating margin was much smaller. No one was thinking it was going to get to the operating margin it had now. And that was a company that, you know, everybody has in their wallet now and everybody had in their wallet back then, right? So, uh, and that's actually another way to identify some great opportunities. And, and Peter Lynch even referred that, like demutualization. When you see something like demutualized, whether it's the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, MasterCard, Visa, you don't see it as often anymore. Those are usually some fantastic opportunities to invest because the company's not being run really for profit until it's run for profit. And then another thing to kind of think about is the amount of some of these smaller companies trying to invest, uh, you know, in SG&A and how that might be affecting, because of course there's many different ways to invest in operational cash, uh, you know, through CapEx, but there's also a lot of ways to do it above the income line where that might be really, you know, masking the amount of profitability that a company currently would be at, but they're trying to invest, you know, sales team, you know, in five years, it's going to start pumping out a lot more money. And so that's one thing that I was really, uh, that helped me try to think about a current valuation of Expel back in, you know, 2014, 2015, and trying to really fully understand what they probably should be making now if they weren't reinvesting as much money as they were. Uh, and then going back to the management and how they're able to incentivize, motivate, get, get all these you know pieces that they're investing into these human kind of uh, expenses, how will that really help the trajectory of the company in terms of earnings, gross margins and revenues later, you know, five years down the road? You know, another thing I wanted to bring up with you guys when it comes to finding great companies early is, is thinking about trends, you know, because it's, it's one thing to do our screeners, you know, find, find companies that way, going to events, finding companies that way. But, you know, one thing that we don't really talk about too much on here that or at least in a while we haven't really talked about is forecasting certain trends that you see are coming and then how to more or less find not just the companies within that, but then the great companies within that that are trying to capitalize on those trends. So how do you guys think about that when it comes to finding these great companies early? Um, feel free, anybody jump in. Yeah, it's kind of case by case. I mean, it's like there are certain, you know, industries that are very highly valued right now. And, and it, you know, it, you know, the stock I'll mention now, I, I, I do own and I'm on the board of the scientific industries like they had, you know, a pretty commodity lab equipment business. And then they had some intellectual property around um, something called bioprocessing, which is, is um, kind of like tools and equipment for um, biotech companies. Um, and, you know, like when I look, looked at it, it, I didn't know anything about bioprocessing, but you see they're getting royalties from something and then you see who's paying the royalties and it's, you know, a company trading at 10 times revenue that is growing really fast. And, um, and so you, like that one, I kind of stumbled into and now they're emphasizing that area more. Um, and it's the growth uh, part of the business. But, um, you know, for me, like I don't start out top down, I start, I go bottom up. And that's why 
like I'll look at something that's cheap and then say, oh, like that thing over there looks like it could be worth a lot. I mean, we me I mentioned cryptocurrency. Like I'm actually kind of not a big, you know, I'm I'm more of a gold person than a Bitcoin person, but it's it's hard to ignore that, you know, crypto is something that the markets are valuing very highly right now. You know, just like bioprocessing, crypto, you know, I mentioned like podcasting is one of the fastest growing media areas. So I didn't go out, I did own Liberated Syndication for a while. I didn't go out looking for a podcast company to invest in. Um, but usually the stuff I invest in is kind of like boring, slow growth stuff. And then, like I said, you invest and then you get really excited if there's some upside thing that seems pretty sexy in the market today. That's at least for me. The, Sean and Jason, it sounds like maybe are more focused on, well, maybe more management than big themes, but I don't know. You got to speak for yourself. Yeah, I, I don't really have, have anything with, with big themes. Uh, just be, I, I guess, seeing what, you know, is happening around me and just trying to take, take a guess of what, where a company might be within that space and seeing if there is some type of tailwind behind it to really potentially help out with growth later on. Jason? I, I think what I, what I could add is that, you know, sometimes there's, I, there's with microcap investing in particular, right? You have companies which are doing very well in a, in a niche, right? And the question is, how big is that niche going to grow? And so it's interesting when you see, uh, you know, like a company like Expel, not really devote very much money to advertising, right? It's a lot of word of mouth, a lot of people on, on, who love cars almost seeking out the product because it's, it's been a very small percentage up until recently um, for just you know traditional marketing marketing. So when you see like passionate customers, to me that's always intriguing and you need to investigate more. And and I go back and I think I, I don't I can't find the the post right now, but I, I posted on, on Twitter before about uh, how these analysts really underestimated how many Starbucks could be in the United States at saturation tremendously underestimated and you know if and and so you know and we all know about coffee right it's not like coffee's been around for a long time we all you know but the 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 to look at like how many starbucks there are in seattle and think oh there only could be a fraction of that in, in other markets or oh no people in suburbs won't won't appreciate you know coffee places coffee houses like starbucks uh is sometimes a, you know is as is, is a potential opportunity for like further investigation because when you see passionate people in Seattle or passionate you know people who with Porsches they say why are there not other passionate people around the country or passionate people who own Subarus who may want you know some of the same benefits and so you know, a lot of times I think there's opportunities in in stocks that you can't really model out very effectively early on right and that scares away a lot of a lot of investors because they say well I can't model but you can sense, you can be roughly right, right? And you can sense there's something, some great possibility there. And, and so, yeah, that's, I, I, it's not necessarily maybe a theme is by what you mean, but I think it's a sense that there's, there's, you know, there's a niche that has a possibility of becoming tremendously larger. And then it's, that's a tremendous tailwind for, for a lot of these small companies. And I'd, I'd like to add on to Jason's point that usually the microcaps are focusing on a niche and then expanding from there. And usually it's hard for an investor to see where, where the company's going. 
But if you're talking with the management, you can kind of get an idea, and especially the really talented ones, they're able to communicate where they see themselves out, you know, getting bigger than their, their niche. So I remember when I was meeting with Ryan Pape and uh, Barry, the CFO, you know, I don't remember when it was specifically, but it was at one of the investor conferences. And I asked him, you know, like, how, how are you guys going to expand out of pain protection film? And he's like, I've got a book, a list of so many other products that I want to, you know, sell. And through my study of intelligent fanatics or great business leaders, they all, they start teeny tiny, you know, and looking at retail, you know, with Starbucks or you're looking at Sam Walton, that's a little easier to conceptualize because you're usually starting with a small geographic location, you're just replicating. But with some of these other industries, it's a little bit harder to conceptualize going from paint protection film to, uh, you know, window tint, then now to like protection film for like interiors for cars, and then going from, you know, the ceramic uh, stuff that you put on the outside of the car. It's, there's so many different things. It's a little bit, like I said, harder to think about it, but the really talented leaders, they, they are, they're talented enough to go from, you know, a small place and expand it. You know, and they, they figure out a way to do that. One more thing, Sean, is that one book that I always, recommend people to read is like Blueprint to a Billion. And, and, and Sean, I think our friend Ian Castle also enjoys that book. Yep. And you, you will sometimes find these tiny little companies who latch on to a bigger company that's that's growing, right? And I have like, for example, uh, you know, some some ownership in, in Galaxy Gaming, which is a which is a micro cap and they're latched on to, they're riding the iGaming wave with their content on the back of Evolution, which is a you know, very large iGaming platform. And, you know, of course, there's a big question, right? And I don't know how, you know, it could be a 10-bagger, it, it could be a nothing, right? And that's the difficulty with investing early is that how much of the value we're going to go to content producers, how, many, how much of the value is going to go to the platform, you know, will, will, you know, they have a lawsuit that has to be resolved and things like that. So, you know, it's very difficult. It's very different. It was always, even with Expel, it's easy to say, hey, it's gone up 40 times. Look how, what a genius I am, right? But, you know, honestly, I was a total moron in some ways because um, when I initially looked at it, it was like $4 uh, in like 2015. I said, forget it. This is car condoms. This is ridiculous. How many people want car condoms, right? And I actually bought a tiny little position, sold down half of it when I saw some like difficulty. And, you know, it was the fact that it continued to go down in the lawsuit and I started investigating a little bit more that gave me the opportunity to really and the interest is like really investigated. But I probably, I may have missed out if there was no lawsuit or if there was no uh, microcap sort of bear market in mid 2015 onward for a while, uh, even because it was at $4 and that still would have been a 10 bagger. So, you know, a lot of times it's just finding, you know, the stock finally hits our skill set that we can analyze. And we, and we end up with a little bit of luck, right? Luck comes into play with, with finding some of these, uh, these early companies. And we don't like to admit it because we're all fantastic investors, but you know, there's a decent amount of luck to this game. I, I'd 100%. say it's, it's way, probably more than 50% of luck. Just being in the right place at the right time and be, but having the courage is gonna be probably the next most important part of 
going after the company, learning as much as you can, and then being able to buy. Finding the company 50% luck, holding on to the great companies, I would say is like only like 15% luck. Right. Oh yeah. It's, it's a lot more skill, a lot more courage. Yeah. So I'm I, sorry, Marcus. I, I really want to throw it to right, you. I was just about to jump. Like, I, I'm good at the part that's luck and I'm bad at the part that's skill. No, but totally. Like the, luck, the luck part is I live in Las Vegas, man. Luck. Yeah. I love luck. <laughs> So one one last topic, you know, before before we let everybody go, you know, we've been talking about the positive and and a lot of the the, the you know great anecdotes, a couple you know not so great that that happened, but I really want to talk about you know the imposter syndrome or or how how we can identify the imposters where you know you think you found one that's oh this is it great company early I don't think it's a lottery ticket I think this actually might be a real thing and. I should hold it forever. Here we go. I'm going to cost average up as it keeps uh, performing the whole thing. You know, so in your guys' experiences, you know, what are some things that you've seen that have been clearly, okay, now I know what to look for as uh, this is an imposter, great company early. Whoever wants to start. Sean, Marcus? Uh, Kind of going, using my music analogy, there's it's pretty easy to see somebody's skill. Seeing a business's skill usually takes time to see how they execute. And then usually the profits is the uh, yardstick that you're able to see if they're, they're doing well. Um, but usually with an imposter, say in music, you know, they're just playing, you know, what everybody else is playing. And they don't really put any of their own unique spin to it or style. And I think going to businesses, it's the same thing. And management, it's the same thing. They'll say, you know, what you want to hear. They, they'll say, you know, if it's, you know, somebody who's managing money, they're going to, you know, spout out lots of Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger. Or if it's a business, they're going to be, you know, really salesy. They're just going to try to tell you everything that you want to hear to, you know, sell, you know, you, you to buy their company and become an investor. So I think there's a pretty, you know, again, this could be a really big topic, but it's, it's identifiable, you know, just seeing somebody who's just saying something and, you know, regurgitating what, whereas somebody who actually really understands something, who's really an expert on something, really can add their own twist to it. And then when they're communicating to you, they can do it in such a simple way and concrete way that you're like, wow. I really actually understand this. And so I think it's applicable to businesses as well. Absolutely. Marcus, Jason? I have have some thoughts, Marcus, but if you want to go first, it's up to you. I'm happy to go first. All right. Yeah, so um, I mean, the way I look at idea generation, like I mentioned, it comes at it from a margin of safety and like generally a low valuation relative to earnings or assets. So, you know, I think the thing that's great about that is, is there's less downside than if it's, you know, like the next mining stock or like a lot of people in the, in the micro cap world get attracted to like lottery tickets, you know, biotechs or some mining situations seem like two of the most common. Um, And so I usually like to find like most of what I invest in are just kind of cheap stocks, but some do have this like lottery ticket element to them. Um, and 
the situations that where I lose money tend to be, you know, and like Warren Buffett has written and talked about this a lot of like, at some point in his career, he moved, he moved away from, you know, really cheap, bad businesses into great businesses. And, you know, I've been frustrated many times by just dead money, you know, in a stock, like the, the one that I have the biggest position in right now, that's been frustrating for a really long time. Um, I was about to say shout out to Nate Tobik for giving me this one, but I don't know whether to like, if that's actually a shout out. Um, but I do think it's cheap, but it's just kind of has been dead money. And this has been like a value investors uh, graveyard, I think for like a decade is Hanover Foods, uh, which I do own. And, you know, it's so cheap. It's like trades at like 20% of networking capital and they make like canned foods and stuff. So it's not going away. It's really cheap, but they just don't really consider themselves a public company. And, and you know, I, I plan to hold that for a long time, but um, you know, it's one of those things where you could wake up one day and like they sold to someone at above where the stock trades or, you know, they pay a 2% dividend, but that's just such a bad opportunity cost. So those are my bad situations. And I think that's the good thing about value investing is that, you know, you have a margin of safety. So it's, unless you got something really wrong, you know, it doesn't, it's not going to go away. Uh, that's been my experience. I, I'll, let me tell you what I think is probably for, for growth investors, like the most dangerous imposter situation at all, of all time. Okay. Which is you've latched on to a great founder who's done a remarkable job taking the company from here to here, but for whatever reason, and, and you've benefited from that and you give him a lot of trust and a lot of rope, but he, whatever it is, and usually because he's, he can't build a great management team around him, can't go from here to here. And you end up giving this guy a lot of time and you a lot of opportunity costs, which has been lost because you're waiting for him to make the next step, to make the hires, to, to build the team around him, to, to move into ancillary platforms, and he or she just can't do it. And I, I find those situations to be extremely frustrating. And because you really like the person, you love what they've done, they've made you money, they just can't make you much more money. And those are very tough to identify. I mean, the, the crooks, the slime balls, the promo teams, the guys who give you like a 60 page deck, it's a $2 trillion size TAM. Those are easy to identify, right? It's, it's, the, it's, it's the really good guys who just can't, you know, they're AAA players, but they can't get to the major league. Those are the guys that really break your heart. And, and sometimes well, your wallet. And, but sometimes you might be able to ask that and try to get an idea of where, what their actual motive is. Cause sometimes there are, you know, lots of people like that and they're just happy being, you know, where they are and they, you know, that's just the lifestyle that they want because they're, but there are some of the other ones that are like gung ho. I'm just trying to make the biggest company and they're, they have the skills, the courage to actually build that team around them. And so, yeah, it's, that's one, one way to think about some of the people just to stay away from is just being on the same page. Cause if you want to make the most money, you know, out of your investment, you want somebody who has the vision to actually build the pipeline and all the, the business to get to that very big company. Cause there are a lot of people that are 
happy just doing, you know, their own thing or just being at, you know, a $10 million company or whatever. Yeah. I mean, and that, that's a difficult thing, right? I mean, people's, you, you know, every management team is different, you know, today and five years from now, they either will improve or they will get more, we just stay the same. Right. Jason, how do you tell the difference between a management team that, like you said, is a triple, the triple A player versus the major league player, but let's say they're in a position where, and, and where it's taken them a bit longer, right? You know, I mean, because there's some major, there's some AAA players, right? You just use this analogy that they don't make the, you know, they're like Luke Voigt, right? I'm sorry, I'm a Yankee fan. You know, they're like Luke Voigt, who, you know, uh, no one, I don't think anyone, you know, thought back when he got drafted would eventually be the home run leader. And uh, even though it was a truncated 2020 season, you know, so <laughs> how do you identify the good, the good management teams that have been there? They've made you money. They've hit a little bit of a plateau, but maybe just trying to tell the difference between they're just waiting for the next, the right opportunity to take it to that next level, or just they have plateaued completely. You know, if I knew the answer to that question, Bobby, I would still owe my Liat, right? You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, was that management though? I don't think that was so much management as it was. This is, you know, this is the problem when you analyze mistakes. It's so hard to figure out what exactly was your mistake and what was bad luck, uh, what was just timing. Um, so, you know, everybody likes to say, oh, you got to, you know, pay your tuition, learn from mistakes. You know what? Learn from success. It's so much more fun. Uh, <laughs> learn from success. Uh, you know, the worst thing, and so many people do this, they learn the wrong thing from their mistake, which is like another mistake, right? <laughs> you know, it's like... <laughs> And it's just imagine the amount of time that you would waste learning other people's mistakes and embedding that in your head while you could be learning the right steps to take and then acting on it so much quicker. Right. And so it's like, think of like a, a maze and there's so many people, you know, who have done significantly exactly what you want to do and they've done phenomenally and they're already at the end of the maze and they already have the path there you, and you can just pretty much retrace it. Just you know, just to get back, like Marcus, I mean, Marcus is a little bit more, I sense like a more of a, just a traditional value investor, right? Focusing on that margin of safety, probably looking for lower PE stocks while Sean and I are, are, are not like that as much uh, these days. And you know, we've benefited from this tremendous decade long tailwind in, in multiples, right? That makes some of our growth investments look which would have been very good, look like genius moves. Right. But they may not look like genius moves. Well, in another two weeks, when I go on another podcast, when Nick Spell is like <laughs> five clubs, it's not going to look like a genius move. But, uh, you know, but I mean, really, right? There's, there's multiple contractions sometimes too. That, that, and you have to be able as an investor to figure out how much of what, what you did was really picking the right stock, picking the right team, and how much of it was just, in some ways, kind of luck. You know, and it's, it's really not an easy thing to do. I mean, that's why we're in business, right? You know, if, if, as, as Ian, I think, would say in, in a couple uh, presentations, investing is hard. Yep. And uh, 
I think I think that might be a great place to end it right there. So I'm uh, let's get everybody's final takes where people can go and follow you on social media or and or websites. So uh, Sean, love to get your final take on this topic and uh, where people can go and follow you. Yep. So I like like I said, I think one of the big, greatest superpowers if you're looking for the next you know Walmart, the next Costco, the next Southwest Airlines is to really hone in on the uh, what, what's knowable. And I think that that part would be the, the people portion, you know, that starting with the leader and then going down to the culture they're creating, the team that they're building. Uh, and with me, like I, I write my own uh, stuff like on Twitter. So my handles Iddings underscore Sean, I-D-D-I-N-G-S underscore S-E-A-N. And I write uh, stuff on, I relaunched like a new uh, blog thewoodshed.com and shed with two d's and i just you know pretty much kind of going back through intelligent fanatics kind of stuff republishing that and you know writing up new stuff and following how i'm applying some of the things i've learned to my my businesses very cool and by the way he's got some of the most epic threads out there uh covering business and investing and uh keep doing those those are i, I love reading the long twitter threads you know you just end up you think you're just you think it's so quick but then you end up like half hour later oh Jesus, it's on the 60th tweet and i'm connecting but it but it's fun i, I love it so uh, marcus <laughs> yeah so this marcus. has been fun um yeah i guess final thought yeah it, it i think though everyone evolves as an investor so and, and in some respect like the holy grail is like combining value and growth you know and so i've like stumbled upon a few really high growth compounder type situations and i I tend to sell too early. So I, I uh, like I said earlier, so I'm trying to evolve into kind of, you know, focusing in on, you know, the, the, the value stocks that have some of these attributes that Sean and Jason have talked about. So it's kind of, that's, I guess my focus. I think I learned some stuff from this conversation to help with, with that evolution. And I'm on Twitter too. It's uh, at Marcus Frampton. And I also put out some writing and stuff, the, the link to, like my blog that I write about over the counter stocks is on my Twitter. It's, uh, but it's microcapletter.com. Very cool. Jason? Well, you can find me on, uh, on Twitter at HTRAC180, E-I-G-H-T, TRAC180, or, or a microcap club, or at Hudson215 Capital. Um, always a pleasure, Bobby. And, and uh, uh, I just wanna say one more last thing we, we didn't talk about. And even if you are, aren't a microcap investor, even if you don't talk to management, sometimes you can read like, like a, a letter from like Constellation Software, like their chairman, they're like, it just blows you away. And, and sometimes people, I mean, they literally just print PDFs telling you, giving you the blueprint about like the future and how great they are. And you just are, you know, why I haven't owned more of that stock, why everyone here hasn't owned more of that stock. You know, this goes to show you how we're still learning and trying to improve all the time. So, you know, sometimes you don't, you know, opportunities are like everywhere. You just have to, you just have to put a little bit of work in them and find them. Yep. I couldn't agree more. I, I would also add in transcripts, conference calls, just, you know, anywhere that if you can't personally get, if, if you're one, if you have a personality that likes to talk to management, but can't get a hold of them, there's so, there, there is a lot more stuff out there, you know, not, 
maybe not all the ones that Marcus looks at, all these OTC dark stocks, but you know, a good amount, a good amount of these uh, micros do tend to uh, do you know conference calls and stuff like that, have transcripts. But with that, gentlemen, this is an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining on this episode of the Investors Roundtable, and uh, have a great weekend. And I look forward to seeing you all next week. Not you guys specifically, if you want to, of course. But, you know, I, I, this is like the, the royal we. Anyways, okay. With that, thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Right, thanks, guys. Thank you.